we are going to be finishing out this sermon series through John. Now, it's only a three-part sermon series. That's because we're not going through the whole gospel of John. We're just going through chapter one of John. I decided to hit the brakes a little bit. Let's slow down in our study of scripture because here's my goal. I want you to walk away from John's gospel, John chapter one, absolutely enthralled and in love with this gospel. I want you to see the rich tapestry that John is weaving for his readers. And I want you to be able to go home and say, I want to keep going. So today we're going to end chapter one, but it doesn't have to end your journey through reading it and engaging with the scripture in that way. If you uh, want to go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter one, we are going to be there. Uh, if you're visiting, you know, just uh, uh, there should be Bibles in the pews if you don't have one. And uh, there might be somebody here who hasn't read their Bible in a while, who hasn't been to church in a while. And so I hope you'll feel welcomed here. While you're turning, a quick word about who John is. So John was one of Jesus's best friends. He was on that inner circle. He had a front row seat experience of who this Jesus is. And now he is giving his eyewitness account and he's bringing on other people to build this case to identify this is who Jesus was. And now in today's text, he's going to call up Jesus's very first disciples. And he's going to say, okay, what did you witness? What did you experience? What did you see? Now, that word disciple is quite literally translated follower. It could also mean like student, somebody who's following after somebody else. Matthias, Matthias could be, I'm not Greek, so I don't really uh, claim to know how to say these things, but there it is if you want to take a swing at it. And still to our day, we need to define what does it mean to be a follower? Because in today's world, you can be a follower of somebody simply by clicking a button. It's like, oh, I watch it, click, okay, I'm a follower on social media or online or whatever. I follow after them. And you could have never met the person and still be a follower of them. Not the case in Jesus's world. To be a disciple in Jesus's context involved commitment. Now, it's no secret that the commitment muscle in today's world hasn't grown any stronger. In fact, I read an article recently talking about millennials. They're saying, here's all the great things my generation millennials have created. Um, one of the things that we've developed is this thing that they labeled commitment phobia. Have you heard of this? So in the, here's a quote from the article. People are either freaked out over the thought of committing or have a nagging feeling in the back of their mind over the consequence that commitment brings along with it. Commitment phobia. I decided to take a little deeper dive. Like, where does this creep itself up? So I found the, another survey, a worldwide survey, or maybe it's a nationwide survey, that eHarmony did, a dating website. Uh, and just looking at the millennial generation and statistics, they did a little survey. Here's some of the, the, the results that came up. 39% of millennials are not sure whether their current partner is the one for them. 15% of millennials wonder whether they would stumble across somebody better than their current partner. 34% of millennials suffer from commitment issues because they've been hurt by a past relationship. 29% of millennials lack the confidence to navigate a relationship for extended periods. And then finally, 10% of millennials can't even imagine 
being in a relationship with just one person for the rest of their life. One out of 10 millennials believe that. Let's take it one level deeper. Have you heard of these things called, and I'm not making this up, short-term marriage license? Have you heard of these? It's a real thing. You can, before you even say I do, you can determine the length of your marriage. So you could go in and say, I'm going to do a 15-year lease. I'm going to do a a 10-year, a two-year. Like you can determine what you want to do. And the point behind it, in all seriousness, the point behind it was, let's just remove all of the, the worry about court and the hassle and the commitment. Just have a little term, try it out, and then whenever your, your license is uh, expired, you can renegotiate the terms. Commitment phobia, commitment issues. But when Jesus was calling people to himself, Jesus refused to lower the bar. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, we get an example. Jesus is with his disciples. They go into a town, and a man says, hey, Jesus... I want to be a follower of you. And Jesus says, hey, that's great, but here's the thing. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Essentially saying, it's great you want to be a follower of me, but you're essentially going to be homeless. So I want you to really think, do you actually want to be a follower of me or not? That is what discipleship is all about. And I think, I'm just assuming, but I think, That we have far less disciples these days because of a word that's hidden inside of disciple, and that's the word discipline, where we get that root word discipline. Many people in Jesus' time, they were fans of Jesus, right? They were fans. They hung around Jesus. They liked the free meals. They were enthralled by the crowds and the messages. They liked what he had to say. They're all there because they wanted something from Jesus. Fix me. Give me a miracle. Feed me. Heal me. Do all of these things for me. That's what I'm looking for. And let's be honest. Is it much different today? That's all people come to Jesus for, to get something out of him. But the reality is, is that Jesus is not interested in fans. Jesus is not interested in people who just like him. And so if you're ready, Jesus wants disciples. And to be a disciple means to leave behind all of your comfort and your desires. Your pursuits become secondary to what Jesus has in store for your life. So for the next 25 minutes, I want to ask you a question. If you're writing, taking notes, if you like to type things on your phone, go ahead and pull up your notes section right now. I'm going to ask you a very simple question, and for the next 25 minutes, I want you to keep asking yourself this over and over and over again. And it's in your head, so you can just be honest with yourself. Is it possible that you are more a fan than you are a disciple? Is that even in the scope of possibility for your life? Is it possible that you are someone who's just hanging around? You like Jesus, but How interested are you in that personal commitment? Are you asking yourself that question, what is it actually going to cost me to be a disciple? So let's take a step back and build out what we're reading here. So John is building this case of who he believed Jesus to be. And in this very first chapter, 
he's setting up a pretty remarkable case. First, he says, I'm his best friend. I've, I've been there. I was there. I witnessed these things. And I believe Jesus is who he says he was. In fact, I don't believe that Jesus was just with God in the beginning. I believe he is the incarnated, the indwelling of God with us. Remember we talked about that Jesus dwelt, the Logos dwelt with us. It's like pitching a tent and there's no privacy or secrecy in the tent. And that's what God said, I want my relationship with you to be. Nothing separates you. And then last week he brought on a key witness, John the Baptist, who's the older cousin of Jesus, but also has his own following. He is preparing the way. And what does John the Baptist claim about his cousin? Behold the Lamb of God. And now Jesus, or John is bringing about Jesus' closest disciples, the people who gave up everything. And he's asking them the question, what persuaded you? What was it about Jesus that convinced you to actually begin following him. So that's where we're going. In verse 35, we're moving into that final section of his case. Here we go. John chapter 1, verse 35. And we're going to just walk our way in this sermon. We're going to walk our way through the rest of John chapter 1. The next day, remember these are happening in days. Next day, next day, next day, boom, boom, boom. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Now, we put a lot of weight in that word disciple. In this context, they're just students. There's a teacher, there's a student. This can happen in different ways. John the Baptist has his own disciples. He is a rabbi in a sense, a teacher, he has his two disciples. They're with him. And John the Baptist declares, when he sees Jesus walking, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, a couple things here. One is, we have an idea of who these two disciples are. One of them we'll learn a little bit later is most likely Andrew, brother of Simon Peter. The other one, not named, and that's because John, the author of the gospel, often do, he doesn't ever name himself. He often calls himself the one Jesus loved, but that's most likely the other disciple. And here John the Baptist is, he makes a declaration about who Jesus is. And that phrase, Lamb of God, wouldn't have been lost on first century readers. Now we discussed this a little bit last week, but it's so critical for us to, 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 to bring in, to, to internalize that I want to repeat it again. In the Old Testament, so in these people's Bible, their whole ideology and worldview was that you are sinful and the only way you can get that sin out of you is by passing it on to something else, right? Because your sin has a cost and the cost of that sin is death. And if you don't want to be the one dying, then you need to pass your sin off to a substitute. In this case, it is often the best of your livestock, which would have been a lamb, these guys produce clothing. These guys produce food. These guys produce, uh, you know, safety or not safety, but you know, economic safety, right? They, this is the best you have. And the idea was as you passed on this lamb, your sin is now passed to the lamb and the priest would kill it and your sin dies because your sin costs something. All sin costs something. And you only bring your best to the priest. So what is John declaring? Behold, Jesus is, Jesus is God's best. God is bringing forth the innocent to take the place of the guilty. It's a big statement on John the Baptist's part. 
Because the lamb had to be absolutely perfect, had to be unblemished. And here we have a man walking out of the crowd. And he makes a statement about him, verse 37. Now the two disciples, Andrew and most likely John the gospel writer, the two disciples heard John the Baptist say this and they followed Jesus. No harm in that. So Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said this, what are you seeking? A critical question for many of us to ask. What are you seeking? Why are you here? And they said to him, Rabbi, which John added this, just means teacher. Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, one of the most important statements that you will ever hear, come and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was the 10th hour. Essentially, they stayed the night with him. Essentially, was what that means. They, they, st- they spent an extended amount of time with him. Now, at first glance, this seems like a pretty obvious move on these guys' part, right? An opportunity of a lifetime. There's Jesus, and I get to be a disciple of him. Yeah, that sounds pretty remarkable. I think most of us would sign up for that. But here's the thing. At this point in the story, these guys don't know anything about who Jesus is. He hasn't performed any miracles. He hasn't done any major teachings. He hasn't said anything really remarkable. He just had a statement made about him from John the Baptist. And Jesus definitely did not fit the mold of a messianic deliverer, right? They were expecting a guy with a crown and a sword to come and deliver Israel from the shackles of Rome. Instead, they get a guy with a headband and a hammer who would walk his way to a cross doesn't fit what they thought. But these guys, they decide to follow him. Now, we need to set some parameters in our mind about what it means to be a disciple, a a student of a rabbi in this culture. It wasn't like a a part-time college student working 15 hours a week and then going home on the weekends. No, a disciple was a 24-7 job. You lived with the rabbi. You ate with the rabbi. You walked in life with the rabbi. In fact, I did a little bit of research of, you know, some, what was it like for a student to be a, you know, to, to follow after one of these rabbis? And there's this ancient proverb, Jewish proverb, that says, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Essentially saying, a good student follows so closely behind their teacher that when the teacher walks and stirs up dust, it will fall on a good student's feet. So remember, at this point in the story, these guys, they, they're curious, but they don't know who this Jesus is. But something happened being with Jesus. Something happened in this very short amount of time that convinced these guys. How do we know? It's because here in just a moment, they are about to go and tell their friends about the Messiah that they found. They are about to become completely convinced Jesus is who he says he was. We don't know what Jesus talked about with them, though. It probably went something like he's done in other places where he says, hey, let's look at the Bible. Where do you want to start? Do you want to look at Genesis chapter 2, the one that will crush the serpent's head? Do you want to go to Isaiah 53 and talk about the suffering servant? Do you want to look at uh, that the, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, that he'll come from the Davidic line? Like all of it, it points to me. But regardless of what he says, all we know is that being with Jesus 
Spending time with Jesus was enough. It was enough to convince these guys that he really was the Messiah. Let's keep reading. Text is about to get really interesting here. Verse 40, now one of the two of them heard John speak and followed Jesus, and that was Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother. Now, he first found his own brother Simon, and so this is Andrew talking to his brother Simon, said, hey, we found the Messiah. So there we go, he's convinced, which means the Christ. Thank you, uh, John, who put that in for us. Verse 42, now, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at Simon, and he said, you're Simon son of John. Simon's probably like, yeah, that's me. Cool. Nice to meet you. You're now called Cephas, which means Peter. <laughs> can you, can you imagine that conversation? Like, like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jesus. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm Simon. No, you're not. You're Peter. N- no, I think I'm Simon. I, I think my name's Simon. No, your, your name is The Rock. It's like, what is happening? I imagine Andrew, the brother's like, okay, Jesus, you just made it awkward. Come on. Like, I'm trying to introduce you here. Like, what's, What is happening? Why does Jesus change his name? Small point, big moment, small point, because we're going to keep moving through this text. It's because Jesus understands something about what Peter will be and do before anybody else recognizes it. Before Andrew or the disciples or Peter himself even know, Jesus sees right through him. He says, you will be the rock in which my church will be founded. Acts chapter 2, he'll preach a sermon declaring Jesus as the resurrected Lord and thousands will be added to the church on that day. And the church of Christ, Christ's body will begin. It's a big moment, but Peter can't see it. Andrew can't see it. And the question is, what can Jesus see in you that you can't even see? What is Jesus calling you to that you don't even recognize. That's completely foreign. We keep reading, verse 43. The next day, here we are, boom, boom, boom. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, hey, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, hey, we found the one whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. It is so vital that we just stop here for a second and just marvel at what's happening here. This is how the gospel spreads. One person tells another person. One life impacts another life. This is how, this is God's economy. This is how God decided to to begin, to kick this whole thing off. One person telling another person telling another person. So Philip, he comes and he tells Nathaniel, hey, we found the one from Nazareth. And Nathaniel asked the question that everybody was thinking, but nobody was brave enough to ask, can anything good come out of that podunk town, Nazareth? Surely you got it wrong. One, you want to be the one telling me that the Messiah is here, so calm down. And two, he definitely can't be coming from Nazareth. Because let's be honest, we all look down on people and places based off of where we live, right? If you live in Vero Beach, you look down on people who live in Fort Pierce. If you live, if you live in Fort Pierce, you look down on people who live in Port St. Lucie. If you live in Port St. Lucie, you look down on people who live in Okeechobee. If you live in Okeechobee, I don't know who you're looking down on if you look in Okeechobee, but I'm sure, I'm sure you'll find somebody, right? So based on Nathaniel's reaction, we know 
We know Nazareth is a hole-in-the-wall town. And this is God's plan. This is his economy. This is the outworking of the kingdom, and nobody sees it coming. Nobody expects the Messiah to come to Nazareth as a carpenter. No one expects that, the, that God in the flesh will recruit fishermen who are nobodies. Nobody will expect that the kingdom is going to rely on one guy telling another guy, telling another guy, telling another guy. Like plenty of us would say, God, I got a far better marketing strategy for you. Like, are you sure you want to go around this way? We could pour a lot of money into this. We could put a lot of power into this. We can make a big bang. And what does Jesus respond? He says, just come and see. Just come and see. Let me show you something you've never seen before. Come and see. It will be enough. And those powerful words will now transfer lips. Nathanael asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Maybe those are the words you need to hear. You're skeptical, you're doubting. You're somewhere along in your faith that you're bumping along. You've had some rough patches. You don't know. You see everybody else who believes and you're not sure if you're ready to take that leap. Jesus says, come and see. And I hope somebody in your circles who is a believer will also say it to you as well. Philip says, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael. This is the ending of our section here. So Nathanael coming to him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's like, uh, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, well, before Philip called you, I, I kind of saw you under the fig tree. Now, we don't know what happened under the fig tree. We don't know. It's not like a peeping Tom moment. This is a Jesus saw something that no one else was supposed to see. And accepts Nathaniel in because, look at his response in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So Jesus answered, and I love this response, because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, that's why you believe? Buddy, you are going to see greater things than that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We don't have time to go into the depth and all of those Old Testament passages that were popping off in Nathaniel's head in that moment. Here's what I do know. I love this section of John's Gospel. I love the ending of John chapter 1. Why? Because here you have a group of just ordinary guys who in the end are going to give their life for the sake of what used to be a stranger. And John is telling us why, how were they even persuaded? I mean, these guys were just a bunch of fishermen, a bunch of nobodies. And Jesus turned them into a bunch of somebodies. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians. Just listen to these words. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose. God chose what is weak in the world 
to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know what I hear in that? God chooses foolish and humble things so that nobody can think they can do it without God's intervention. Do you want to know who thinks they can do it without God's intervention? Who can, who can have power and significance outside of God? It's Satan. Satan seeks power outside of God, and he's going to convince you to believe the exact same lie. Do you want to know why these guys were fishermen? This is an important point. You want to know why these guys were fishermen? Why this was their path? Why they chose this or didn't choose this? The answer is pretty simple. It's because they didn't have what it took to be a rabbi student. You know, the, every young Jewish boy's dream at this time was to say, I am a rabbi. This was like being a, an NBA superstar or NFL superstar or some great author or something significant, the president of the United States. To be a rabbi student and to eventually become a rabbi, this was every father's dream for their kids. My son's a rabbi. This was the point of excellence that everybody was striving for. But at this point in their careers, that hope of being significant as a rabbi student, that, that ship had already sailed. These guys didn't have what it took. These men then, because of that, they realized something that many of us often look over. Whenever given the opportunity, it is an incredibly high honor, high privilege, and high calling to give up everything to be a disciple of a rabbi. To give up everything to be a disciple of Jesus. Now the world hears that and thinks you are stupid, that you are absurd, that that is the most ridiculous thing that you could ever believe. And we tend to believe and think, well, what is this going to cost me? What, am I, what do I really have to give up? How uncomfortable is this really going to make me? But the remarkable thing is, these guys who probably don't have anything much more to lose, they're willing to drop everything because they recognize the honor it is to step into a discipleship. Matthew paints us out, just the immediacy of this a little bit. I'm just going to read it to you. It's the same story, different world, different context. Matthew takes a stand, and he says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers. We've heard this story. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately. They left their nets and they followed him. Going a bit from there, he saw two more brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending nets and Jesus called to them. Immediately, they left their boat and they left their father and they followed him. Why were they willing to drop everything immediately? Because they had a chance to be somebody. They had a chance. So here's the question. The question for you. Who are you a follower of? Everybody follows somebody. So who do you follow? And if you say, oh, Peyton, I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't follow anybody. I don't, I'm not a follower. Well, you actually just told me who you follow. It's yourself. Who do you follow? As I land this plane on discipleship, I want to challenge you, all of us, myself included, to consider what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? 
Like it's easy to say we want to be disciples, but are we willing to actually submit ourselves completely to him? Are we willing to give up our power for the sake of the kingdom? Because here's the truth about discipleship. It is a hard truth. Jesus asked us to be his students, to be covered in the dust through obedience to him because we walk so closely behind him. But the question is still there. Why would I give up all of my power, all of my rights to follow this man named Jesus? Why would I want to do it with Jesus? And the answer lies in the fact that he was before all things and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. He is the one keeping the universe together. He is the one who's helping us navigate the complexities of this life. Imagine it this way. Let me give you a small example. Imagine you are the founder of a startup um, software company. You're getting it off the ground. You have a small team. You're struggling to get some traction. All of a sudden, you get a random phone call. You answer it, and it's Bill Gates on the line. He says, hey, man, I've, I've been watching your company. Really exciting things happen. I want to come on and advise your team, and I want to help lead you to success. Are you going to turn down that offer? I hope not. <laughs> some of you might. I hope you wouldn't. And yet, when Jesus offers his guidance and wisdom, we're often hesitant to take it. Think of it this way for our athletes. Imagine an athlete approaching a coach and saying, I, wanna, I want you to make me a champion. I want you to make me great, but I don't want you to ask me to do anything I don't want to do. Like, just don't, like, don't challenge me too much. The coach is probably going to say, like, you know, buddy, that's not how this thing works. <laughs> if you want to be great, you have to be disciplined. That's what being a disciple is all about. So many of us, we want to be great. We want to do great things for the kingdom, but we don't necessarily want to be a disciple. We want the end result, but we don't want to have to put through the work. It reminds me of a quote that G.K. Chesterton said that hits me in the gut every time I hear it. He says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So I want to challenge you, challenge myself, challenge this church. Embrace the difficulty of discipleship. I want to challenge you, challenge myself, challenge this church to submit yourself completely to Jesus. Allow him to restructure your life, which will be painful, but it will be absolutely worth it. Come and see is what Jesus says to you. And as you follow Jesus, here is my guarantee. You will experience purpose and meaning that you will not find anywhere else in the world. Remember, this is a battle of the heart. There's so many things competing for our attention and our loyalty. Stay focused on Jesus. Keep him at the center of your life, and let's seek to be the disciples that we've been called to be. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we want to lift up this moment that we have, this moment of challenge, introspection, of thinking about our life and what we have to offer. God, we may seem small or feel small. We may feel like we're on top of a mountain right now, God, I just pray that we will, wherever we are in our life, we will recognize that we have been called to something deeper, something more profound, something way more significant than we could ever do or accomplish on our own. 
Father, I pray for this church. I pray for the souls that, that come here every week that are called the Vero Beach Church of Christ, that are part of this church family. I pray that we will take seriously this call to be disciples, that we will take on the challenge, that we will deny ourselves, that we will be the light in this world and the salt of the earth. God, that we will do things that we wouldn't normally do, that we will be people that we wouldn't normally be, all for the sake of Jesus and his name. God, help us, help us crucify our flesh to put our old selfless, selfish ways to the side. God, help us take up our own cross and to follow after you. God, may our feet be covered by the dust of our rabbi, our teacher, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. God, help us in our discipleship and our following of Jesus Christ. We say this prayer in the name of that holy and mighty name. Amen.